0: Well, good evening everyone. Good evening. Oh, four of you are awake. That's good. <laughs> it's, great, uh, it's great to be back. It's easy to say it, but it is great to be back. You know, I've, I often speak about how um, you have this staggered pattern of your speakers at uh, this conference where you do two years in a row. I really like it. Um, I guess it's tough for you. If the speaker's not so great, you've got to hear him twice. But um, it was uh, great to be here uh, last year with the uh, other Joe, as you may remember, Joe Reese. And uh, it's just a real privilege to share the pulpit again with Larry. Larry and I were chatting beforehand. When was the last time we spoke at a conference together? And I we, we think we figured it was the year before my daughter Alyssa was born. Alyssa's about to turn nine. So it's been a little while, bro, but it's, uh, it's great to be back with you. And it's a privilege to be here. Uh, so many familiar faces, a few new ones that I haven't seen before. look forward to getting to know you. Uh, it's just a privilege, honestly, uh, to be here. John chapter 1, please. Somewhat fitting that we've come from Revelation. We're now turning to John. I see I've got some groupies from Arizona that are here. A little shout out to my peeps. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that for those of you who have heard me speak before, one of the the things I I really strongly believe in and encourage um, in the ministry is to try and not just try and convey thoughts or ideas to you, but to get you excited about getting into the Word of God for yourself. I love that. I love, as Larry gave us some tonight, I love when a preacher gives you some homework or some ideas or things to follow up on your own. And um, I try to study subjects or passages or topics fairly systematically in a fairly detailed way and then leave them for a while and come back to them. So I did a study just over a decade ago that I came back to. I purposely don't go back to my old notes. Kind of have to bake it from scratch. Um, and so I want to share with you over the course this weekend some thoughts here from the Gospel of John. But let me, uh, let's read some verses first before I give you an outline of what we want to look at. John. Chapter 1, verse 1. You may know these words well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, please. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full, please notice, of grace and truth. John, bear witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. For he was before me, and of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And then over, please, to the very last verse of the book of John. John chapter 21 and verse 25. John writes, last verse, and there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which, if they should be written every one... I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. And then one last set of verses, please, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, well-known chapter in many respects, possibly brand new to you, but some beautiful verses here. We're just going to focus a few verses in Hebrews 11, starting at verse 23. Hebrews 11, 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming, or valuing, if you will, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. And we'll stop our formal reading there, but we'll be reading a few other verses as we go through. So my uh, thesis, if you will, this morning is a little different than last year's thesis. So for those who may remember, last year um, we talked a little bit about Arizona, in fact, didn't we? We talked about deserts, for those who may have remembered. We commented how deserts were prolific in the Word of God. We thought about de- deserts, as you may remember, they were dangerous places, they're dry places, they're desolate places. Obviously, I'm not the head of the Tourism Bureau for Arizona, but um, it's a lovely place and we love it. Um, but we, we saw how deserts were so prolific in the Word of God that they were often used by the Lord for very distinct purposes. And we tried out of that to, to make some very practical statements, some encouraging things to think of it as a place of separation, a place of nourishment, uh, a place of being alone with the Lord. Well, this year I want to turn our focus a little bit here to center in the Gospel of John, much like Larry is giving us, if you will, a balcony view of the book of Revelation. In one respect, I want to give you a balcony view of the Gospel of John, but with one major thread. You know, and, I, and I say this frequently, but I think it's so important. You now, the Word of God was written in books, right? I mean, the chapter divisions are you know, administratively helpful, but the Word of God was written in books, and I encourage you to read it in books. You know, one of the things, we used to run a leadership camp years ago at the very camp that Heather and I met. Um, we would assign all of the campers one of the smaller books of the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, what I call the 15-minuters, right? I mean, there's none of those books that take you much more than 15 minutes to read. And we insisted that they read it each day without interruption, trying to ignore, if you will, the chapter or uh, verse differences. In fact, I have a Bible at home because most of you, if you look at your Bible, it looks, most of them have every verse as its own paragraph. And sometimes you have, it breaks the sequence of it. I have this, this Bible at home, which is great, because it just has it in columns where there's no paragraph break for the number of each verse. It's very small. Not that it's bad to have it like, like we have it here, but it gives you a greater flow, and so we encourage these campers, or are, are basically mandated, you know, you'll read it and you'll like it, but we, um, we encourage them, and it was striking to us how much they discovered at the end of the two weeks that they hadn't even seen the first few days. As some of you have heard me say, I really don't like to preach on a passage until I've read it about a hundred times. Now, it's not that there's something magical about a hundred, but it gives me a sense that I've actually got the opportunity to, to read what it says. And in a day where we all have collective ADHD, if you will, where we're always distracted, we're always short-term reading of this or that, you know, not to bore you at length with this, but I came from Washington, D.C. today, I was uh, uh, reviewing grants there, and one of the things that I do for one of our organization is I I lead their media efforts or their communication efforts, because I do a lot of media stuff and interviews and so on, and it strikes me, even 20 years ago, um, we used to call a a soundbite on the news, we used to talk about the 21-second soundbite which is to say that if the president, for example, today was giving a speech and the newscaster was reporting the news, they would come and say, you know, President Obama gave a speech today on the economy, and then they panned to the president, and you'd listen to the president for 21 seconds, and then the broadcaster would, you know, the typical, and back to you, Connie, and they would go... Okay, that was a joke, all right? Anyway, <laughs> they go back to the anchor person who would, who would continue the news. Do you know that the typical soundbite today is eight seconds. That's not a bad thing, but I'm not encouraging you to watch the news tonight, but if you do watch the news, notice that. When they go to a different uh, 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 major um, event of the day, literally eight to ten seconds is what they'll pan to. And that can happen to us, and it can happen to us when we're reading our Bibles. We get distracted. I really encourage you to read a book in its entirety, start to finish. There's no book of the Bible genuinely that will take you longer than watching a full movie that's maybe a sobering thought you know the time you spend watching monday night football you can read the book of genesis or any of the longer books of the bible and in fact for those from our our assembly in arizona these poor folks um what we've decided what i've decided as and working with the elders that um Every time I speak, we're just choosing one book of the Bible, and we're systematically working through 66 books. We just did Ezra a couple of weeks ago, where we just try and give an overview of a single book. So in a sense, I want to give you an overview of the Gospel of John this weekend. But instead of giving you the whole balcony view of all of the features, because, of course, that would take much more than a weekend, I simply want to pull out one critical but beautiful theme. The theme, of course is the superiority of the Lord Jesus. But how so? If I said to you right now, prove to me that the Lord Jesus is great, how would you do it? Well, with the roughly 100 people, say, in this room, we probably could come up with 100 different ways, couldn't we? We could, if you focused it in the Gospel of John, you could say, well, why don't we look at the miracles of the Lord Jesus? Why don't we look at the great I am statements of the Lord Jesus? Why don't we look at something that people often don't notice explicitly in the Gospel of John? The travels of the Lord Jesus. It's a very interesting book in talking about the way the Lord moves. He's doing a series of circles, if you will, throughout uh, the land of Israel. Um, We could look at literally innumerable threads in this beautiful masterpiece tapestry of the Gospel of John. Well, I want to pull out one of those threads. My, my thesis, as I say, is this. That every time an Old Testament character is mentioned in the Gospel of John, they're mentioned explicitly to demonstrate that the Lord Jesus is greater. Every one of them. And they're not just randomly pulled We're not going to have time to go through every Old Testament character that's mentioned this weekend, but we're going to hit the the majority of them. We're going to, for example, tonight think about Moses. Tomorrow we'll think together about Elijah, David, and Abraham. And Sunday, Lord willing, we'll talk together about Jacob and Joseph. It's a systematic, if you will, almost, if I could put it this way, a legal argument It's as if you're my jury, if you will, Your Honor, and I have to prove to you unequivocally that the Lord Jesus is greater. And I'm going to start with Moses because Moses is the most referenced character in the Gospel of John outside the Lord Jesus himself, 13 times we read of Moses. And to the Jews, Moses was a central figure. But then we'll turn to perhaps the greatest prophet of all time, Elijah. If you get to prove the Lord Jesus is greater, you better start lining up some prophets. So here is a great prophet. And then we'll turn to arguably the greatest king that the nation ever had, David. We haven't time to talk about Solomon. Solomon is referenced in this book, but we'll think a little bit about David. And we'll show to you that a greater than David is here. And then Abraham. I mean, Abraham, was he not the father of the nation? If, you're, if, you, if you want to show the superiority of Christ, you, you better prove to me that there's a greater than Abraham. And you know the verse, don't you, that we'll come to, and the Lord Jesus himself said it before Abraham was, I am. And then we'll conclude Sunday with thinking about he being the one who is greater than Joseph, that fruitful bough planted by a well whose branches run over the wall. Hoping that by the time we're done, you'll have to conclude that a greater is here. In fact, the structure of the Gospel of John would suggest that. Because by the time you get to chapter 10, the comparisons are over. It's almost as if you said, all right. Greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than David, greater than Abraham, greater than Jacob, greater than Joseph, greater than Solomon. We can list all these. You know what? Just stop comparing. Because he is in a league of his own. And my hope genuinely this weekend is that, as we just heard from Larry, that when your heart melts with adoration for the one who is greater than all, that it'll motivate you to serve him more fully. In a sense, it's a devotional study this weekend. It's doctrinal in one way, and we'll look at some specifics and some very intricate details of these great men uh, that we read of in the Gospel of John. But I hope you conclude the way the hymn writer concludes. No mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Fair is he than all the fair that fill the heavenly train. Because ultimately, there's no comparison, right? I can compare how bright this light bulb is in this lamp over here and how bright the light bulb is in that one. We can look and compare. And then tomorrow morning, I'll show you the big light bulb outside, right? The sun. And you say, oh, yeah, I guess it's, it's a little bit brighter than this 100-watt bulb. And no disrespect to Moses and these others because we're going to see great things about them. But ultimately, there is no one like my Savior Do you know that tonight? I mean, do you know that more than here, north of the ears? How about south? Do you know it in the way that it motivates you, that it changes you, that it guides you, that it motivates you to serve him? That's what we pray for tonight. I don't want some academic discussion. That you can show the 13 ways in which the Lord Jesus is greater than Moses. I mean, in some ways, academic is good. the Scripture does tell us to love the Lord our God with all our minds. So you got to use the neurons that you have. But how much more than knowing it in my head, than knowing it in my heart? And I hope that by the end of this weekend, you can, if you will, fall in love all over again with the Lord Jesus. So the Gospel of John is unique. As you know, it's, it's not surprising that these comparisons are here in the Gospel of John. Because as you might know, the Gospel of John presents the Lord Jesus in a unique way. I don't want to bore you with too many technicalities and numbers, but you know there are four Gospels, and that's not a coincidence either. Right? Numbers are very important to the Lord. Numbers are important. If you want some homework, I haven't given you homework yet. Think about numbers. I may have given that homework to you a year, a year ago. Maybe you didn't do it. Maybe you did. But numbers are critical. Number one is important in the scriptures. Number two is particularly important, right? We can divide the whole world into two. Those who are saved and lost, right? There's no, never, the scripture doesn't use the word unsaved, but saved or lost. And We can think of the number three. Number three is critical to understanding the, um, the Trinity, of course. And that's why, if you will, even physically speaking, so much of the universe is built around the number three, three dimensions of time, three states of matter. You know, time comes out of the future, meets us in the present, goes into the past. That can sometimes speak to us of the very godhead. Everything that comes out from God comes out from God the Father. We meet God in the person in the present in the person of the Lord Jesus. We can only understand the present because of the past, and that's because of the spirit of God that teaches us. The number four is a number of completion. There are four, if you will, corners of the earth. I mean, we know the earth is round, but it's described in the scripture as the four corners of the earth because it's giving four perspectives. It's as if there are four witnesses testifying to the reality of the person of the Lord Jesus. And so Matthew has an angle, Mark has an angle, Luke has an angle, John has an angle. They're never contradictory They're often overlapping, but they each have a unique perspective. And again, you're likely familiar with this. Matthew, if you will, presents the Lord Jesus as the king. And so we see him there in particular relationship to Israel as being the ultimate king of Israel. This is often pictured in an, in an animal format of a lion, as we heard earlier, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Often associated with the color purple, because purple is the royal color. The book of Mark, on the other hand, presents the Lord Jesus as the servant of Jehovah. He's serving continuously. As I often said, the key word to the whole book of Mark is the word and, because it starts almost every single paragraph begins with and, because that's what a servant's doing. He's doing this and doing this and doing this. He's constantly serving. There's no mention of his heritage. It's the shortest of the books, represented it in an animal figure, if you will, as the as the calf or as the oxen that's, that's serving, that's that's, going, that's constantly at work, and it's often presented in the color red because of the sacrifice that comes with that. The Gospel of Luke presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect man. Right? Luke knew a little bit about the body being a physician, and so he, he is the one who is designated to pre- represent the Lord Jesus as the man who is perfect. The figure, animal or human figure, is that of the face of a man. And the color most often associated with Luke would be the color white. Because he's sinless, spotless, without sin. And finally, there's the Gospel of John that presents the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. So if if the Gospel of Luke presents him as the Son of Man, here he is the Son of God. In perfect unison, we see the God-man, if you will... And here in the Gospel of John, we see him, uh, an animal figure, if you will, as the eagle. The one whose dwelling is above, and the color is the color blue of the sky. Again, of heavenly origin, not of earthly origin. So in John's angle, it's no surprise then that he's elevating the Lord Jesus well above any other human comparison that you could make. And so hopefully with each of these individuals, we'll see they were great men, and they did great things. And in fact, that's why we read Hebrews 11, to see these wonderful things said of Moses. Because Moses did value and understood that the suffering that he would undergo for the sake of Christ was so much more valuable than anything Egypt had to offer. And you know, when you come to Claremont, you've got to be careful what you say about Egyptians. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's not awkward. Um, so... But everything that Egypt had to offer, he knew that there was something superior, that there was something better. But nonetheless, a greater than Moses is here. And the time we have tonight, it's a lengthy introduction, but in the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes or so, let's just think a little bit about Moses. How great Moses was, but indeed, that a greater than Moses is here. When you think of Moses, what do you think of? Well, you know, we, we read a little bit there in, John, in Hebrews 11. You know, he had, a, he had a, a very interesting start to his life. There were some very special circumstances uh, to the start to his life. And, and even at that, uh, when we, heard that, we read in John 11, that by faith his parents kept him. You know, that there was something unique from his very birth. Of course, we, could, we don't have time, but we can compare it to the birth of the Lord Jesus. a miraculous birth of the Lord Jesus. And we have, a, if you will, almost a miraculous survival of, of Moses uh, because he was under the curse, if you will. Um, he was prepared in a very interesting way. We talked about this last year. We saw that almost every major character in the word of God that was used of the Lord in service had a period of time in the wilderness that they had to be prepared. And Moses had a very unique, if you will, dual preparation. He he was prepared in the court of Pharaoh in in the most intellectual and luxurious accommodations possible. And then he was sent out with the sheep in the wilderness. One of these things is not like the other, right? But he had both, and both of them are what prepared him. And of course, thereafter, Moses had tremendous leadership. And in those ways, we could compare Him to the Lord Jesus, could we not? His divine birth, his, if you will, preparation in the throne room of heaven, but also on this planet, even into the wilderness. And as we were going to see in some of the verses that we read, there's no doubt that the Jews thought of Moses as as their leader, spiritual leader. Well, there is no greater leader, as we'll see in a moment, than the person of the Lord Jesus himself. And so it's no surprise then, and this is actually what launched me into do this study. I still distinctly remember the day uh, Willie Burnett, for those of you who may know him, was giving a, uh, giving, uh, a message on an entirely different topic. And he said, I'm really fascinated by how many times Moses has mentioned the Gospel of John. That's all he said, and he moved on to another statement. Well, that was good homework for me, and that's when I started looking into all these references. And in fact, we could almost argue that the whole of the Gospels, when compared to the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament and the first four books of the New Testament, that in fact there's a very interesting comparison between them. Five, you know, I didn't go through all the numbers, five is also an important number in the scripture, and I'll let you figure out what five means. But here are the five books of the law, Who's the primary character in those five books? There's lots of characters, especially in the book of Genesis, but really the dominant character in the first five books of the Old Testament is Moses. Who's the dominant character in the first four books of the New Testament? Evidently the Lord Jesus. How does the, how does the, the Pentateuch end? It says, well, there was really no man in all the world like Moses. He was the meekest man in all the earth. How does the Gospel of John end? Well, we read it, didn't we? There's really no one like the Lord Jesus. If all the books could be written or were written, then the world couldn't contain the whole. We think of, of tremendous miracles that were associated with Moses' life, and you can compare uh, the plagues even to the miracles of the Lord Jesus. And the connections are many and intricate, complicated, but take, your, take the time to do it, and you'll find that there's a beautiful connection between them. And so it's no surprise then that so much of the Gospel of John is dedicated to demonstrating that the Lord Jesus is greater than Moses. And we read the key statement, didn't we? For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, I am so thankful tonight that I am not under law, but I'm under grace. if I were under law, well, one, I wouldn't be here tonight. Neither would any of you. Praise God. We've been delivered from that, and we have a salvation that exceeds a list. And so this comparison is beautiful between them, but you think of all the things, and and, and, you know, I I literally wrote down lists of things that we could um, appreciate about uh, Moses, but I've narrowed it down to four things, and let's look at just four things together that define, if you will, Moses, and that way we can see in each case that the Lord Jesus was greater. Number one, Moses delivered them from Egypt. Did he not? Um, They were in slavery in Egypt. We know the story well. How did Moses get it? You know, didn't Moses have the best of Egypt? I mean, why would he want to take them out of Egypt? Like, wouldn't he want to take them further into Egypt? Like, wouldn't he want them to get more and more of it? Well, Moses was able to deliver them from Egypt because he saw all that Egypt had to offer. I can almost imagine saying, I can almost imagine Moses, because of his wonderful connection to the Lord and because of the verses that describe it in Hebrews 11, saying, um, is that it? Right? Is that, is that the whole menu? Have you ever gone to a restaurant and they give you a menu? And you're like, like wanting to flip through pages, but no, no, sir, it's just that. You're like... Like, no disrespect, but that's it? I've got, like, two choices, right? And and, and not to make light of it, but in many respects, I, I kind of think of Moses that way. Sort of walking around, looking at all the gold. And look, you want gold. Like, go to the museum in Cairo. I went there when I was a child. I haven't been to Egypt now in over 20 years. But uh some of you know, my parents came from there. Um, I mean, just... From the tiny, one little tomb of a really unknown pharaoh that somehow escaped all of the pillaging of hundreds of years of thieves, we have this unbelievable collection of gold and jewelry and incredible things that we have from Tutankhamun. I mean, he, with, with respect, was kind of an unknown phenomenon. You can imagine the riches that surrounded this. Anything he wanted was at his disposal. What if I offered that to you tonight, honestly? I mean, just think about it for a minute. Just let me be a little bit facetious with you. And just let's pretend that you had an unlimited bank account. That you could live anywhere you wanted to. That you could have literally anything you wanted. What would you want? Where would you be? It's sobering sometimes to think about that, isn't it? Right? As we often said, work is a mercy from God. Right? Imagine how much trouble we get ourselves into if we didn't have to work every day. And here's Moses, and he has it all. But he esteemed something more valuable, That's the key word, not only to the book of Hebrews in general, but specifically to Hebrews 11, is the graders and the betters. Notice how many there are of them in Hebrews 11 next time you read them. And really, in some ways, you could compare the Gospel of John to the book of Hebrews. That doesn't get done very often. It's a lot of work. But what the Gospel of John is demonstrating, of course, is the superiority of the Lord Jesus. The book of Hebrews, which is designed, of course, for the Hebrews, is trying to demonstrate to them that the Lord Jesus and the faith that he brings is superior to their Jewish faith. And it's at times incredibly detailed, but with the same conclusion that the Lord Jesus is greater, greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than the sacrifices. They all pointed to him. And so Abraham, uh, Moses could see all that the world has to offer and says, I want something better, just like Abraham wanted something better. Abraham wasn't interested in going down to, to, to Sodom and Gomorrah like his nephew. Because he'd rather sit in his tent and have dinner with the Lord Jesus. And he did. The Lord came to his house. And he cooked for him. Gentlemen, if the Lord came to your house tonight, could you cook for them? I could fry an egg. I could uh, warm up some toast. But there he enjoyed company with the lord jesus himself why was moses able to deliver them out of egypt because he had something better you will never if you will on a day-to-day practical basis reflect the fact that the lord has delivered you from egypt until you realize that what the lord has for you is better than what egypt has And how often, just like the Jewish nation, we've been delivered out of Egypt, they're out there in the wilderness, and what's the first thing they said when when things got a little bit tough? Oh, it would have been, here's the word again, better for us to have been in Egypt. Really? You'd rather go back to the slavery than to have the freedom that you have now? May It not be said of us as believers that we want to go back and, and, and long for the things that they long for in Egypt, as you've all heard me say, all the things that give you bad breath, right? The garlic, the leeks, the onions. I mean, you need some mints when you go over to Egyptians for dinner, right? But they wanted to go back to it, but Moses had delivered them. Moses delivered physical people from a physical nation. A greater than Moses is here. He's delivered you from all of that. Don't go back to it. He's elevated us with a citizenship without slavery. That we needn't be slaves to sin. That we needn't be under the domain of the prince of the power of this earth. But that we have a king who will lead us. A king who, as we're going to see in a moment, feeds us and cares for us every step of the way. It wasn't a void that they were going to. It wasn't like, oh, let's just get out of Egypt, right? We didn't just turn from idols, as we read in the New Testament. We turned to God from idols. It's it's bringing us to something more, to something better, as we've said before. A greater than Moses is here. Well, a second great thing about Moses, not only delivered from Egypt, he's known for his leadership in three ways. Leadership point number one he turned them from unbelief. Remember the idolatry that they were involved with? I mean, they, didn't, they weren't gone for long. I mean, you look at these people. They keep making this. Do you know anyone else like that? Right? I know. Me, right? Because I know me. And here Moses had to stand against their idolatry. He had to have them see that it was the very God that... And you think, wait a minute. How can they turn to these idols... They witnessed the miracles. They saw what it was like to walk across dry land. And don't let your, your, you know, school teachers and your history professors try to try to squeak the truth out of you. I, I'll never forget my history professor who was trying to describe the what actually happened and how the Jews left Egypt. And, and that they really, there, there, there wasn't like they passed through dry land and the water. Is that they, there was just, you know, little pools of water here and there. And they just sort of went from, from one dry spot to another and kind of made their way through. And I said, you know, sir, that actually... Uh, perhaps even deepens the miracle of of what happened, uh, of what's described um, in the the departure from Egypt. And he said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "Well, if if you tell me there's literally only two or three inches of water that they had to go through, I'd be very interested in seeing how the Egyptian chariots drowned in three or four inches of water." You know, <laughs> you just you can't you can't try to humanize a miracle but nonetheless um, they had so recently seen these miracles and now all of a sudden they're turning away has that ever happened to you the very time that the lord has manifested himself to you in a very special way how tragic that very soon thereafter you're put to the test Beware, if you will, of the strong moments of your life because they're likely going to be followed after by a challenge. I mean, It happened to Moses himself. You know, we always say, oh, Satan's going to come after your weaknesses. Nah, watch for your strengths. It's not happened to Moses. Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. What did he do? He lost his temper and killed an Egyptian. And later on, he lost, his temper, he lost his temper again and struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. I mean, it's a picture. I mean, as we're going to see in a moment, I mean, Moses didn't make it into the promised land, not because he struck a rock, because he disobeyed God. But that rock was a picture of Christ. And for him to strike it again was to perhaps signify that the Lord Jesus had to be struck again the old hymn writer said, Nevermore shall God Jehovah smite the shepherd with the sword. Ne'er again shall cruel sinners set up not our glorious Lord. So you be careful even in your strengths. David was a man after God's own heart, as we'll see tomorrow, and he gave his heart to someone else. Abraham was a man of faith and obedience, as we'll see tomorrow also, and he partially obeyed when he should have fully obeyed. So the strengths of these men even demonstrate to us that, praise God, there is one without fault. The Lord Jesus is the only one of whom that can be said. So he was a leader against idolatry. He was a leader in how he fed them. Just quickly go to John 6, just for for a verse or two there. John 6, it's a beautiful argument here. um, Where... The Lord Jesus is using the feeding of the, his people as an example as to how he is greater. So, verse 31 of um, John 6 says, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you. The true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And this launches, we won't take time to read it, this launches into a very complex and lengthy discussion that culminates in verse 48 when he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And this led to a division. In fact, you can look at the times in the Gospel of John that the Lord Jesus divided people. I mean, the Lord Jesus, in one respect, is the ultimate unifier in that he brings all into one body. But he think think not that I come to bring peace on earth, nay, but rather division. There's a lot of division going on, sadly, in the Gospel of John. Three specific times you want to notice the word division in the Gospel of John. I'm kind of doing your homework for you, but look, look at those and see how the Lord divided people. And what he's saying to them is, look, Moses gave you food in the wilderness. It's food that lasted a day. In fact, they made it pretty clear. The Lord made it clear, didn't it? That it didn't last more than a day. They didn't have a refrigerator, right? And they were so dependent on the Lord, they had to be refed every day. Well, if if what Moses did in the physical, the Lord does in the spiritual. Moses fed them physical food. The Lord Jesus is longing to feed you. Are you feeding? I sometimes picture it in my head because I have a weird head, um, that the Lord Jesus every day prepares a feast before me. And I'm so busy running around, doing this, doing that, occupied with other things, that I walk right past the meal. Have you ever had that happen to you, where you've worked really hard to prepare a meal for someone, and they didn't appreciate it, or they just kind of walked past it, or Am I speaking English here? Does anybody else understand what I'm saying? It's really a disconcerting feeling, isn't it? And it's more than just a feeling, but I do sometimes wonder, and yes, feeding involves our work and digging into the Word of God. I get that. But I sometimes think that the Lord is preparing a feast for me, and I'm going off and eating fast food from the world. I know the analogy is not perfect, but he's prepared this beautiful meal, and I'm eating the garlic and leeks and onions from Egypt. What are you eating? How has your diet been this last week? You know, my patients ask me almost on a daily basis how their diet may be connected to their cancer. How has your spiritual diet been since last Friday night? Because let me tell you, what you eat is what you are. It will affect you. Thirdly, Moses was a leader by standing against unbelief, by feeding them. And number three, by healing them. John 3, you know this verse well, uh, you needn't turn to it. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Their serpents were there, they were in trouble, they were dying. Physically, they just had to look up, look and live as we sing, O sinner, live, look to Jesus now and live. What Moses did physically, the Lord Jesus does spiritually. If I be lifted up, I will draw men unto myself. Moses might have healed a few serpent bites. The Lord Jesus can heal you and heal and bind your wounds in a way that no one else can. Have you tasted of that? I'm not just talking about the physical wounds that you have. It's not beyond him to do that too, of course. But who of, us, who of us in this room do not have scars that go well beyond your physical body? Those hurts, those pains that other people might not even know about. He cares. And he can heal. He has that authority. He has that power. Oh, Yes, in a sense, he's healed our greatest illness of sin. But sin, has, sin is such a horrific illness that it manifests itself in so many different symptoms, as we in medicine call signs and symptoms in the body. But the Lord Jesus has not answered every one of them, including a new body that he has on order for you. The Lord Jesus heals. Have you allowed him to do that? Again, I picture in my mind the Lord Jesus standing there with all of the healing equipment and medicines that we need, we're just rushing off. You know, I have a few patients like that. You know, oh, yeah, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything, doc. I'm, I'm okay. You know, denial is one of the diagnostic criteria of something having a heart attack, actually. Oh, it's just a bit of indigestion, you know, just wash it down with a Diet Coke. I'll, I'll be okay. Because it's often central to the disease itself, and yet the Lord is longing to heal you. Where are you suffering you don't have to tell me you know it don't you he's the one who can heal Moses was great because of his delivery from Egypt Moses was great because of leadership in the wilderness Moses was great because of the law oh this is a whole topic of itself let me remind you uh, again not trying to get too medical on you but um, I might think of it this way the law is a diagnostic tool not a therapeutic tool. The disease I deal with, we often have to send people for x-rays. In particular, we send them for an MRI. For those of you who have been an MRI, it's like having a jackhammer next to your head. But anyway, um, you know, what if, what if in my clinic on Monday, I see a patient who um, I said to them last week, you know, the MRI shows, unfortunately, that your disease is active. And they say, well, you know, Dr. McHale, can you send me to the MRI again? That's when I do an MRI of their brain. But no, Uh, can can you send me, why do you want me to, why do you want to go back to the MRI? Well, you told me the MRI showed me what the disease was, so I figured if I I spend enough time in the MRI, maybe I'll get better. Or or the thermometer that tells you that you have a fever. Don't go sucking on a thermometer thinking it's going to make you any better. It's a diagnostic tool. The law, in many respects, is a diagnostic tool, isn't it? It diagnoses our problem. It gives us the degree of severity of sin. It makes sin exceeding sinful. So that we see how sick we are. When the law lays it out in detail, line after line line after line after line of all the things that we violate, of course you offend in one, you're guilty of the whole. But the principle of law, that principle that we heard earlier from Larry, that God's going to get me for that one, is a principle that, thankfully, we no longer live under. Why? Because the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It doesn't pretend the law doesn't exist. you think the the Lord Jesus just invalidated the law? Of course not. He upheld the law. He was greater than the law, if you will. Uh, he... he, he Demonstrate to us that the law was our schoolmaster, if you will, to bring us to Christ. He was the natural end of the law. He doesn't pretend that the law is useless. The law had its day and was of tremendous value. But don't go back and feel that we need to live the ways of the law. Even in our salvation day to day, we don't live by the principle of law, as I've mentioned. We live under the principle of grace. You know, the law came with, if you will, outward righteousness. Um, Go to John 7 for just a moment uh, to see this illustrated. John 7, verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about me to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast the devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave, you, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken. Are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment so the law emphasized the external appearance the outward righteousness that the act of circumcision they're saying he said to them "You, you think that's more important than saving the health of this man and making him whole what moses could do physically the lord has done spiritually Do you think he's made me just outrightly righteous? I'm not even that outrightly righteous anyway. But do you think that's all? Do you think that's what the point is of of becoming a Christian? So that you can kind of look nice and cleaned up and and show up to meeting and and say the right things and, and sing the right hymns and know the right words? Of course not. He has changed us from the inside out. I'm looking forward to hearing Larry's testimony again, although I may have heard it once or twice. But, well, you know, I think you have justification in saying it's changed, bro. Not, not that she died in it, but it's changed because, you know, when Paul gave his testimony, it changed. The brightness of the light got brighter as he came to appreciate it all the more. And how marvelous that I can tell you that I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Salvation is not about just putting a cover over your sin. It's exposing the sin for what it really is and genuinely curing it. I'm so thankful for that. We think of so many, of, if you will, the religions of the world or, or the external view of Christendom. And I'm not trying to pick on one group per se, but oh, it's all about the externals, isn't it? The robes and the incense and it's all about what, what people feel good on the outside i 'm so thankful that my Savior, my greater than Moses, has changed me from the inside. the law couldn 't do that the law didn 't have the authority or the power to do that. Our time's going quickly so i 'll let you look at this I'll look at this more fully on your own, but let me give you one more example of how the law the Lord Jesus is superior to the law. the law was in Written, the Lord Jesus spoke words. In, in, in um, chapter 5, for example, he says, you know, you look at the written words of Moses. What was written down and you see my words or you hear my words. You know, it's harder to speak than to write, if you will gonna write something down you got time to correct it and edit it and fix it you know I write a lot of scientific papers in fact I submitted one early this morning because it was due this morning and uh, he- Heather um, hated the fact that when I was doing I shouldn't share this with you especially if you're a student for students in the room just plug your ears for a minute um, you know while I was doing my what we call multiple myeloma fellowship um, when I was had finished my my training and wanted to focus on one cancer you know, kind of just for kicks, I, I did a master's degree at night. Um, Heather has told me I, will, I, can never, I can't get any more degrees. Like I told her the other, uh, a, couple, a few years back, I'm like, why don't I just do a law degree? It'd be kind of interesting. She's like, no, stop. And, and you know, with the master's, we would always have a lot of, of, um, of deadlines. And I used to say, well, if I have to write a big paper, I'm going to leave it until two days before it's due. Because that way I know I won't spend more than two days on it, Right. <laughs> Somehow, the teacher and Heather didn't quite fully appreciate that. So I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. But I have possibly done that <clears throat> once or twice. <clears throat> so um, we write a lot of papers. And, and, you know, it's classic. When I write this, when this paper I submitted this morning, I, there must have been, I must have had eight or nine versions of it. I'd go back and edit it. Oh, no, that sentence doesn't sound so right. It needs some rework. Now, of course, that's not the way Moses wrote the Word of God because it was inspired of God. But the principle of words is more challenging than writing. Ask any politician, right? When you get put to the test and you're asked the question, uh, and they sort of do the Pillsbury Doughboy, uh, uh, I I don't know. I don't know the answer to that because they don't have a prepared text. The Lord Jesus didn't need a prepared text, to thee. Oh, what beautiful words he spoke. Next time you read through the Gospel of John, Just enjoy the words that he says. Just let them flow over you. It's remarkable. And the final point about the law, the law judges. And I'm not in any way undermining the judgment of the Lord Jesus. But oh, how the Lord brings compassion. And it culminates, you don't need to turn to it, but it culminates in John. Remember, that's our text today. In John 8, doesn't it? Here's this woman, caught in the very act of adultery. They bring her out in public. Of course, they didn't bring the man. She, if she was very caught in the very act, she clearly didn't have time to get fully dressed. She may have just been wrapped in a blanket or a towel or something. And they come and bring her to the Lord Jesus and says, Moses tells us that we should stone her. What do you say? Seems like a catch-22, isn't it? Almost seems that no matter what the Lord Jesus says, he's going to offend either the Romans or offend the Jews. And possibly even offend Moses. You know, and the story goes that they had, um, all the people around her had two eyes, right? One eye glaring at her, and the other guy glaring on the ground looking for a stone so they could pick up and stone her. How beautiful. That the Lord Jesus knelt down and wrote on the ground. I don't know what he wrote. Let the theologians debate that. I do know that there are a few times when the Lord Jesus, or when God's hand was writing something. Homework number seven. (laughs) And you know why I think he did that? So that he could distract them from staring at her. And you know the beautiful words that he spoke. So powerful. He that is without sin, let him cast the far stone at her. They all walked out. He didn't condone it by any means. He told her to sin no more. But what compassion of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus did for you and me? Didn't he take the eye of judgment off of you and put it on himself? All those people looking around for stones were now looking at the Lord Jesus as he knelt down and wrote on the ground. Oh, a greater than Moses is here. And I'll conclude with the fourth great thing about Moses. Not only was he delivered them from Egypt. Not only did he demonstrate leadership in the wilderness, not only did he provide them the law, he brought them to the promised land. Would have been a great thing for Moses, isn't it? You've been in the wilderness for 40 years with these belly aching, unhappy people. Finally get them to the promised land? Almost. As we know, he brought them just to the cusp. And as we commented before, because of his disobedience, the Lord said no to his prayer. No, Moses, you're not coming into the promised land. Well, we know, of course, the Lord did ultimately grant that prayer 1,500 years later when he allowed Moses to come in with Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration, which was beautiful. By the way, um, if the Gospel of John presents the Lord Jesus as the Son of God, Why is it the only gospel that doesn't make reference to the Mount of Transfiguration? If you know the answer to that, tell me later. But here's Moses, and he brings them to the very cusp because he couldn't finish what was started. Oh, praise God. We have one who is the author and finisher of faith who went our Joshua, who went to the end and finished the work that was given him to do. So that you and I don't have to stand on the edge of the promised land just looking and going, "Hmm, maybe we'll get there. No, we're there because he's brought us into the land of victory. I'm so thankful that my Lord Jesus has brought me there. So that's just one character. That's just Moses. There's so much more, of course, we could say of Moses. But I hope that I've convinced at least one or two of you that there is one who is greater than Moses, that the Lord Jesus is greater than all. Lord willing, tomorrow, as I say, we'll spend some time with Elijah and David and Abraham and try and similarly demonstrate to you that a greater is here. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to be here tonight. We're grateful. That our Lord Jesus has no comparator, that he is greater than all. And Father, we pray that we wouldn't just know that in our heads, but that we would live that, we would reflect that. We think of all of the assemblies that are represented here, and we're thankful for our gathering tonight. And we pray that we would take these thoughts, these wonderful appreciation of the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation, indeed the one who is the first and the last. And Father, indeed the one who is greater than Moses, help us to. Bear these things in our hearts. Father, we're we're grateful now for our time of fellowship. We're thankful for the refreshments that have been prepared for us. Bless them to us and bless our time and our conversation as we enjoy the fellowship that we can only have because of the Lord Jesus In his name.